How do you successfully create a new B2B market category? This is the question that many founders ask themselves, but it's a very niche topic and there's just not a lot of content out there from people who've truly taken a shot at creating a new market category. So that's why we've created this show. So at G2, we have over 2,100 different software categories now. As I mentioned, when we started 10 years ago, we only had one, which was CRM software. What we're doing at Timescale is we're redefining the database category. Montecarlo is pioneering a category called data observability. The subcategory interview intelligence is new. We are the leader. There's a lot of category creators that are no longer with us. Uh, they're in the, the great category graveyard somewhere. In each episode, we'll learn the backstory behind the B2B founders' category creation efforts. We'll learn what worked, what didn't, and tactical insights for how you can build a winning category strategy. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now, let's jump in to today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Daniel Barber, CEO and co-founder of DataGrail, a data privacy management company that's raised more than $84 million in funding. Daniel, thanks for chatting with me today. Lovely. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate the opportunity. Not a problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe a bit more about your background? Yeah, so as mentioned, yeah, Daniel Barber, I grew up in Australia, as folks will probably figure out throughout the episode, but now reside in San Francisco. So I moved here in 2011. My father's actually from the US, so I lived in Michigan for a little while, lived in the Netherlands, Germany for a little while. I did my MBA in Japan and uh, worked for a Japanese company for a little while. So I've kind of seen lots of different things and ended up in San Francisco through uh, working at the Japanese company and then got into tech in 2012. Some might think this is the least exciting place that you mentioned, but for me, it's exciting. Uh, I did live in Michigan when I was younger. I went to like middle school and a little bit of high school there in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Were you close by to Kalamazoo or did you ever go to Kalamazoo? I, yeah, my cousin actually lives in Kalamazoo. So I've, I've been there. I love Michigan for about three to four months a year. The rest of the time, it's either pretty cold or really hot. So I love to visit my family, but uh, also excited to get on the plane as I, uh, I leave from Thanksgiving and it's probably snowing. Now, I'm sure you've read in the media some of these reports about the decline of Silicon Valley, the death of San Francisco, but you're still here. You didn't flee. You didn't go to Austin. You didn't go to Miami. What are you still doing here? Did you ever have thoughts of leaving? Were you, you persuaded to, to do so like some others have? Or what are your thoughts on that just general narrative that we're seeing out there? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't hesitate for a second to stay. Um, there was never a path that myself or our family would move to Miami or to Austin or any other cities across the U.S., you know, I think partially because of just the proximity, if you will, closeness to Australia and the ability to get on a, a direct flight, even if it is a long way. But also just, you know, it is the the tech capital, the tech hub of, of the world. And I would also sort of expand that out to the Bay Area, not just San Francisco. But if you look at, you know, the ecosystem which San Francisco has, and I think we're starting to see a an increase in in folks coming back to San Francisco, especially with AI and AI investments. I don't think that changes anytime soon, to be honest. And some of the serendipitous kind of moments that you get in the Bay Area really are unparalleled, you know, related to other cities that you might experience. Yeah, I moved here about a year and a half ago. And when I did that, all of my friends, everyone I knew just thought I was insane. Like, are you crazy? How are you moving to San Francisco? And that was, I think, by far one of the best decisions I've ever made in life. 
what I tell people is like the density of just interesting, fascinating people that you have here. I've just never seen it anywhere else. You know, everywhere I go, it's like a 10 minute walk and I meet someone who's building something interesting or they were an early employee at a company that you know, had a lot of success or they're an investor. There's just such an insane level of density here that I think it's just hard to beat in any other city. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, let's switch gears now and, and let's talk about your category creation efforts. Before we do that, maybe if you want to just tee us up with just explaining at a very, very high level what the company does. Yeah, sure thing. So we founded Datagreo in, in 2018, sort of at the, the cusp of what I would say was a very interesting time in privacy. Folks probably remember the GDPR going to effect May 25th of 2018, all of those privacy policy updates, but the concept of privacy dates back much further. And uh, I think, you know, for us, what we saw was kind of two macro trends going on. One in that, you know, businesses are just using and consuming and processing more and more personal information. They're using more and more applications. So the companies that you describe, the people that you meet in San Francisco or the Bay Area are starting new companies. Those companies are then interacting with other businesses and both, you know, businesses that are cloud native. So started and created in the cloud and, you know, existing businesses now are becoming technology companies, whether they want to or not. And, uh, you know, that creates a, an interesting challenge for, for an organization, gets to a point where sort of the risk, the unknown risk, just the personal information that's collected, really gets to a point where they, they just don't, they can't control it. And on the other side of things, the consumer, so in our case, you know, we now expect more transparency, more control over the personal information that businesses have collected. That's really resulted in you know regulations that have gone into effect across the globe so you know we see 75 percent of the globe will have privacy regulations protecting privacy rights by the end of next year but these regulations are really a reflection of consumer expectations so the constituents in the locations are voting for new regulations and that's just because there's expectation around transparency and control and so for data rail we see an opportunity to you know give control back to businesses so that frankly, they can provide transparency and the control that consumers expect. Now, when we talk about market categories, how do you define your market category? Yeah, so you know, data privacy management, your description as we, we entered was, was really the right one. I think it's an interesting time in privacy. I would say we're probably about 15 to 20 years behind data security, right, and cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is a very established category. Today, there are hundreds, if not thousands of major vendors in, in the market. If you've been to the RSA conference in, in San Francisco in, at the Moscone Center, you will see just the swath of companies trying to address this challenge. Privacy is really like just beginning on that journey. The first real vendors that came to market really around the 2015, 2016 period. And this was really a result of the European Union putting forward a piece of regulation that is the GDPR. It went into effect in 2018, but businesses started to form around 2015-16 to address some of the requirements that the GDPR put in place. I was listening to some of your other podcast interviews, and one of them that you had with Gil Alouche, you said that from day one, you knew this was a category creation play. Where did the inspiration come from to even know that category creation was a thing? Did you read Play Bigger, and that's where you initially learned about it? Or where did you learn about it in the first place? It's a good question. I think the interesting thing with category creation, it's very challenging, right? And I think we've seen so many businesses throughout the last decades, especially in tech, 
you know, those that enter the market, there's often this perceived advantage of being first. This concept is, you know, sold through many MBA programs of the first mover advantage and this being a, a thing that people should strive towards. Personally, what I've seen in tech is that often the first mover is actually not an advantage. And so as we looked at this market, we saw, you know, first mover entrance in this market, trying to figure out and really define the category. But in reality, what ends up happening in many cases is those first movers, they educate the market on why people should invest in software to solve a particular problem. And then the second mover to the market, the next generation solution, which, you know, DataGrail would be in that category, we have the ability to shape really the the actual solution for the key problems that might have been solved with the first mover, but in many cases not. And I think, you know, you can see parallels of that in many different markets, right? HipChat is a great example, great product. I was a user back in 2013, 2014, many companies were. I think, you know, it's safe to say Slack has won that market. If you look at Zoom, that's another example, right, where WebEx really trailblazed the market for over a decade. But now I think, you know, it'd be hard to question that Zoom isn't the market leader and there are other players in the market too, but it's, you know, WebEx has sort of lost its dominance in that that category, even though it had such a strong position coming into the market. So I think there are many examples there where the first mover, you know, has some potential advantage, but really has to spend an enormous amount of capital to educate the market on why their particular software will be the number one player for maybe a decade and beyond, which often is the time required for category creation really to come into fruition. Also on that podcast, Andy Raskin was there, who is the idea, the goat of strategic narrative, I think many would call him. And he had said that, you know, he saw you at Saster and you and your head of customer success were really just taking this very narrative-based approach to how you were talking about what the company does. Can you talk to us about that narrative? You know, what is that story and how have you seen that story evolve over the last couple of years? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think the interesting thing in in the market of, of data privacy management is that initially there was this first wave of regulations that went into place. And I think, you know, it was very clear the businesses were trying to figure out how do they get compliant? You know, when you've got a, a large regulation like the GDPR that affects the 27 countries of the European Union, and of course, any business that wants to do business in the European Union this becomes sort of the most prominent thing people are trying to figure out. California moved forward with their regulation, the CCPA in 2020. This was also sort of a, a catalyst, right? And so initially our narrative was really around this concept of continuous compliance and the need to be compliant with the current and forthcoming regulations. I think over time we realized that the reality is it's a lot more than that. And businesses in reality are looking at the brand reputation of what it means to be exposed to risk or not be transparent with their consumer or their customer. And that is really about trust. It starts with trust and it, you know, that trust can be eroded almost overnight in the event of a, a privacy incident. And so businesses have moved to this position of trust. And that started with the conversation that we had with a, a CISO named Steve uh, Zelensky over at Levi's. And he kind of shaped for us how we should think about the narrative for our category. And that was a, an inflection point in the business that I would say led us to, you know, the narrative we have today and a lot of the success that we've seen thus far. 
Where does that narrative live? Is this just on a Google Doc somewhere? And then from there, what do you do to get your team to internalize it? Something that I've heard from a lot of founders is, you know, the founders, maybe the CMO, they'll spend all this time building up the narrative and then they go and walk by their sales team and the sales team is making a completely different pitch and there's a totally different story and everyone has a different story. How do you get the team aligned around that narrative? I mean, frankly, it's really hard, right? Like it's a challenge that we've struggled with. You know, what's challenging with, you know, sort of taking the narrative and distilling it to the sales organization is that, you know, in many cases, people may come to them looking for functionality or looking for features that may address some of their problems. And so it's very difficult for your sales professionals to consume that narrative and make it their own. That's a a job really of the enablement function. And so the importance of the enablement function is not just to, you know, try to make sure that they have the most recent materials and this sales training on, you know, the most recent relevant features. It's really about how do you enable the go-to-market organizations, so customer success teams and sales teams and even marketing teams to be able to speak to that narrative and deliver it in the same way that the founder can based on that experience. But I'd say, you know, this is something that we've struggled with. It's a constant challenge and you're not wrong. I've seen other founders struggle with the same thing because the narrative is really based on hundreds of conversations. Like this is, you know, conversation number 500 and something, right? Where we're talking about the business and the problem that we solve. And so it's built into the way that I orientate around describing the problem today. And so, you know, for folks that are newer to the organization, that is a hard thing to try to consume. And ultimately make it your own. And that's how you make it a genuine story. So it's a good point and a hard one to solve. One of the most famous examples of successful category creation, I think, comes from Gainsight and what they did with customer success. From what I've read in the early days there, they were being kind of pushing the market of CRM or customer support. And they took this stance of, no, we want to go out. We want to be different. We want to not be in those buckets. We want to create our own category. But the safe play could have been to take that challenger position. Have you ever faced something similar where you could have gone into an existing category and made that kind of safe bet of taking that challenger position in an established category instead of going out to create a new one? Yeah. I mean, I'd I'd say that's what we're doing right now. There are a couple of established players in our market that are enormous. They far exceed our size, our revenue, our employee count, our customer count. But we are very happy to have their presence in our market. I think, you know, when you're going along and trying to create a category, often founders and businesses struggle because simply you're trying to educate the entire curve, right? There's a famous book by Jeffrey Moore of Crossing the Chasm. You're effectively trying to educate the entire curve of potential buyers. And that's difficult. Obviously, there's the early adopters who are more likely to purchase your software, but you need to think about how are you educating not just those early adopters, but the folks in the middle part of the curve that at some point will be buyers. And if they're not aware who you are, then that's a challenge. And so it's, I think, a significant advantage to actually come into market second. And so, you know, that's something that I learned from my experience at ToutApp and where we see, you know, today, the leaders in that market are outreach and sales loft and gong. We were early into the market of of sales engagement and, and sales acceleration software. And It was an exciting time, but a very difficult one at the same time, because we were trying to educate all of the buyers, which was just very, very difficult. 
Something I want to touch on there as well, and we were talking about this in the pre-interview that some of the guests we've had on, you're very familiar with them and very close with them. So when I interviewed Godard Abel from G2, I asked him for his number one piece of advice for a founder who's creating a category. And he said, there's this guy, Sangram, and he's the best example of what to do. And that's to partner with your competitors, approach G2 or Gardner, whoever it is, and say, hey, all of us together believe there needs to be a new category. Here's why there needs to be a new category. And then that's how you drive it forward. It sounds like you've done something similar, or at least you, you're not pretending competition doesn't exist and, and you're leveraging that to drive this category forward. No, you're spot on. I think that's good advice. I think in reality, if you're trying to go it alone to create a category, it's going to be a lonely road. And I think there are, you know, countless companies that have, you know, hit potholes along that road and frankly haven't succeeded or have had, you know, mixed success, right? Some you could argue, you know, what is your definition of success? But I think the outcomes that we see with companies like Slack or companies like Zoom are brought about because, you know, other companies have paved that road and allowed Zoom to just drive straight down the road. And I think that, you know, the realization and the comfort that you're describing there of the competitor needs to exist in order for the market to exist is something that not all founders grasp. And so, like I said, I was just fortunate to watch two other companies try to establish categories, largely unsuccessful or with mixed success. And so that led me to realize that Ideally, I don't want to be first. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. When it comes to the line item, then in the early days, did a line item like this even exist for data privacy or did you have to really push and create that? And I'm guessing there was some pull for that to be created by the regulations as well. But what was kind of like the state early on with that line item and how have you seen that change? That's also a good question. The line item for data privacy, I would say when we first started, you know, some folks had purchased uh, an existing solution, probably a smaller number than we see today. But the reality is that line item has expanded over time. Just as we've seen with cybersecurity, now there are many line items in cybersecurity. And so I think that initially there were incumbents in some cases, low number of cases, but even without the incumbent, the fact that there can be conferences and events that bring together many different vendors suggests that there is a large enough market for many players to have successful outcomes. And so I think that you know, in our case, we've seen even today, there are not necessarily incumbents in place in even in the early adopters in some cases, but privacy is expected, right? When you fly an airline or you go to a hotel, you expect that your data is being protected. And so businesses ultimately do need a solution for the problems that we address. And so they're either trying to do it themselves manually, which is probably quite an expensive exercise or looking for potential software solutions to, you know, augment and complement their existing staff and existing approach. Not to keep talking about Gainsight here, but one of the things that I really like about how they approached it is they didn't just, you know, come up with like an abbreviated phrase and say, oh, here's our new category. It's you know, totally different when it's probably just like different words. They really created a movement around the profession of customer success. Are you trying to do something similar with 
data privacy and creating a movement around the data privacy management discipline and skill and have that become a career path that people pursue? Yeah. So I think what's interesting in privacy, and there are some degrees and parallels to, to customer success here, you know, privacy, the discipline today, we see folks in security, folks in legal, folks in privacy itself, owning aspects of the program. Then if you think about why that happens, well, each person is responsible for a different area of the program. If you're in security, your job is probably to protect the data, right? That is your role and responsibility in the organization. If you're a general counsel, you're probably trying to mitigate against all risk, right? You've got other jobs as well, but if you think about it from a risk standpoint, you've got you know, employee risk, you've got litigation risk, and you've got privacy risk among many other things. And so because of this, there are many stakeholders that are involved in the types of conversations that we have. And so bringing them together is a big part of our strategy. And I think you see that in this week, we hosted our first inaugural Data Grave Summit, which brought executives in the room together to talk about this problem. And that's something we'll continue to invest in because we feel like, you know, and we see this, the, a dire need from executives in the market looking for someone to educate and hopefully, you know, bring solutions. But in reality, they're really just trying to bring together ideas at this stage because, you know, the ultimate solution may include DataGrail and also other vendors that need to support adjacent problems that exist within the category. When it comes to strategies and different tactics, what have you used to really evangelize this new category? Yeah, I think that, you know, content, what we're doing right now is really important. I think that, you know, people, especially buyers these days are, you know, spending over 50% of their time researching a particular solution, a technology solution before they engage a company. And so if you know that, then helping them evaluate different solutions before they speak to your sales team is critical to the success. And so as you think about category creation, it's really about what content and what continuum of content helps the buyer self-educate. And that can be, you know, your own content or third-party content, but creating forums for people to be able to do this, whether that's a Slack community or events or webinars or content itself, it really you know, encompasses all mediums that someone can self-educate because that's what today in buyers will do. Yeah, it sounds like from this conversation as well, you're in almost this dream position. I think a lot of founders struggle with making the case for why now. You have the why now coming from governments all over the world that are making this a very, very important issue. What does that look like for you then? Are you just you know, monitoring for the next privacy regulations to come out and then you have to roll out an offering that can help cater to that new privacy regulation? Well, so here's the interesting part, right? That's the assumed position of privacy. So a couple of interesting things that we've seen, we put out an annual privacy trends report and we released the most recent one in in April or May of this year. And, you know, today what we found, right? So we see the transaction volume of people submitting privacy requests of people saying, requesting to businesses, hey, I want to know what information you have about me or hey, I don't want you to sell or share my information, or perhaps I want you to delete all of my information. We see that volume across the customers that we work with because we solve those requests for our customers, among many other things. But the volume of requests, Brett, are quite interesting, right? You would expect that 
California, for example, would be the largest volume because California has regulation. But in fact, on a per capita basis, we see states like Washington or Wisconsin with higher volume per capita than even California. And if you think about that, what that's telling you is that businesses need to address the expectations of consumers at the state level, regardless of whether there's regulation, because what's the alternative? If you are a business and you are refusing privacy rights of your consumer, are you really comfortable saying to the person, sorry, you're just in the wrong state today. You don't have rights. If you're in California, you would. That's not a brand position that most folks are comfortable with. And so we see people generally taking a position that they will honor privacy rights of anyone across any state, because frankly, that's probably the right thing to do for their brand at this stage to you know, build that trust and hopefully show that they're being transparent around how they process personal information. What role do analyst firms play in your approach to creating a category? I hear uh, you know, split answers to this question. Some say that they define success for category creation is when Gardner rolls out the report. Others say, I don't give a shit about what Gardner thinks. No one cares. That's you know, an outdated model. What are your views when it comes to analysts and the influence they have on creating categories? Yeah, good question. I think analysts are very important. We've been engaged with analyst firms since nearly the inception of the company, so late 2018. And we're, Data was a, a Gartner cool vendor in, in 2020. So, you know, ahead of the curve and ahead of many of other, other competitors, simply for this reason, it's really, uh, you know, important to engage the analyst firms because in many cases, they have a finger on the pulse that you may not from the buyer community, from the, the user community. And, you know, I think at this stage, buyers still want to engage analysts to figure out, you know, what is the independent position or independent recommendation that they may have. And in a lot of cases, the analyst firms, in many respects, define the category and confirm the category. Now, that said, I do think that there are new means that people have. So folks like G2, for example, that allow buyers to look at real customer reviews of particular software services. So that's starting to change the market a little bit, but I think the same position holds that in reality, analyst firms and review providers similar to to T2 give indication to buyers of what's happening in the market and where the vendors moving towards. And so I think that companies ultimately do need to work closely with analysts and that's why we have you know a collection of folks that we work with closely, because I think ultimately it helps the buyer buy better software. I'm sure there's been a lot of learnings across this journey so far. If you had to choose one lesson, what would be that big lesson that you've learned so far from your category creation efforts? I think, like I said, sort of in the earlier point, being first is not the position to be. I would say we are very fortunate to be the next generation solution in the market, and that to me, gives us a significant advantage over earlier movers who helped us. But frankly, you know, we're able to provide a better solution because we sort of observed the problem from a longer time period. And we're able to be, you know, customer obsessed to figure out what is the right solution and where is the market going as opposed to being reactive. Final couple of questions here. Is there a specific founder or company that you've just really followed and been inspired by who's created a category? I mean, countless. Your example of Gainsight. So Nick Meta, um, I think, did a phenomenal job with Gainsight. I think customer success is a category in large part because of Nick's efforts. But I think there are a number of them. I think you know, Marketo is another one. 
where, you know, Phil Fernandez, the original founder and, you know, John there as well, did a phenomenal job to sort of build the market and educate folks on why they need, you know, marketing automation. I think Brian at HubSpot and Damesh at HubSpot have done a great job there as well. You know, I think Mark Benioff at Salesforce has clearly defined the category of CRM. There would be no argument that Salesforce is the leader in that market today. But, you know, I think we're still early innings in SaaS. And so I think there's many other founders that are emerging in the market that are demonstrating similar levels of efficacy and just building categories and really like changing the way categories are defined as well. What do you think this world's going to look like from a buyer's perspective if everyone's out there creating categories? Yeah, you know, my conversation with Godard, he said when they started, uh, there was one. It was just CRM. Now G2, I think, is at 2,500. And I believe his prediction was there's just going to be a lot more categories, but AI will be able to help you navigate all that. What are your views there? Do you think there's going to be consolidation of categories or do you think we're going to end up in a place where there's just a lot of new categories out there? Also good question. I think, you know, SaaS has a concept of bundling and unbundling, right? So whenever you see categories get hyper-competition or have hyper-competition, there's often periods of bundling where, you know, companies will look to acquire, you know, competitors or adjacent businesses simply because the market is expecting a closer to an all-in-one solution. And you see this in hyper-competitive markets, right? So folks like Gong and Outreach and Salesloft and Chorus through Zoom Info and Apollo, this market is red hot right now. Um, and it's because each one is vying for, you know, the number one position in the market and they're trying to evaluate what is the next move, right? How do we try to, you know, own the day-to-day operations of the sales professional? And so, you know, this is where you see bundling happening. Things like Clary acquiring Groove. This is, uh, you know, common, you know, Cisco acquiring Splunk, similar kind of scenario. So I think, yes, categories will continue to grow, but there's a natural bundling and unbundling that happens in every hyper-competitive market. Once the market matures to a state where, you know, really there should be three or four or five companies that own a particular jobs to be done framework using Clay Christian's concept. Final question here. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision for what you're building? Yeah, I think that, like I said, privacy is, it's early innings. I think that people will begin to expect privacy in everything that they do. That somewhat exists today, but it's unclear how businesses are using their information. They expect a better experience as well. So, you know, visiting a website is a cookie banner and then, you know, text messages and emails, the best experience someone can receive. Probably not. And so I think that people are looking for a better experience there. But I think overall, like this category, privacy and data privacy in, in, in a more general sense, will expand significantly. It's, it's an area that you know, while there are many players in the market, there are also a lot of problems in the market. So I think that you know, we'll see something that looks like cybersecurity where you know, RSA, there's thousands of vendors. I think at this stage, we're under 100 in data privacy that are prominent. There are many adjacent vendors, but in privacy, it's still pretty small. And so while there's massive market opportunity, people are still trying to figure out the problems that exist and what priority is placed on which problem. And so this is still working itself out, but a very exciting time to be in data privacy. 
Daniel, this conversation has been so much fun. We're going to have to wrap here, but before we do, if any founders listening in just want to follow along with your company building and category creating approach, where should they go? Yeah. So obviously, you know, you can reach out to connect with me on LinkedIn, Daniel Barber on LinkedIn, you should be able to find me on Twitter or on X, if you will. I am Gaijin Dan, which if you know your Japanese, that is foreign person in Japanese. So you find me there. And obviously you can follow LinkedIn on LinkedIn, uh, Data Grail there as well. So those would probably be the three places I'd suggest to start. Amazing. Daniel, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it.